Hello. I'm going to talk about Thomas Harriet and the work he did on the coins of England at the beginning of the 17th century. None of Harriet's mathematical work was published in his lifetime, but some 8,000 pages of it are now available online. Among these pages, there are a few that deal with the matters of coinage. And, for example, we shall be talking about uh, a very early application of symbolic algebra to a practical problem, about the one of the first examples of the use of hydrostatic weighing to measure the density of objects, and finally, an awful lot of complex arithmetical calculations that may have influenced the affairs of the nation. It's worth noting, I think, that uh, Isaac Newton, 100 years later, was employed to do this kind of calculation, uh, and indeed, uh, what he did had a profound influence on the course of economic history in the 19th and 20th centuries. So, it's necessary to begin with a crash course, a very short introduction to the matters of coinage and the use of precious metals for that purpose. In the Roman times, Romano-British times, 2000 years ago, here is a silver coin of Augustus, a very impressive coin made of good silver, and these are often found in this country. However, <coughs> many of the denarii that are found in this country are not made of pure silver like the Augustus coin that we saw. Over the next 200 years or so after Augustus, the denarius was gradually debased and eventually it became a coin essentially made of copper, occasionally with a rather pathetic attempt to make it look like silver by having a sort of silver coating. The Romans were able to make these debased denarii serve the purposes for which they wished them to be used in trade and so on because of their absolute power at that time. But over the next thousand years, matters became very much more complicated. Many countries, nations, began minting their own silver coins, and these were of varying degrees of purity. Fortunately, however, by the 1200s, there were mathematical methods available which enabled these problems to be coped with. And so we find the classic uh, book of uh, Leonardo of Pisa, Fibonacci, the Liber Abaci, first written in 1202, contains a tremendous amount of material on the fineness, purity that is, of 
silver coins and the calculations that are required when these problems have to be dealt with. Uh, here is one example from the English translation by Sigler. Uh, I'm not going to go through this particular one because I'm actually going to give you uh, a much simpler version uh, in a few minutes. But it's obviously important to notice that Fibonacci was using, first of all, the Hindu Arabic numerals, uh, and secondly, of course, the method of calculating with them by what we might call pen rendering, in other words, writing down the figures and rubbing them out and moving them around, rather than just the counters on a board, which had the classic method of dealing <coughs> arithmetical calculations. So coming back to England, by the end of the 13th century, the English had already decided that their coinage was going to be good silver, that it was going to be the sterling standard, which was very close to, if not exactly the same as, uh, what we now call sterling silver, which is 92.5% pure silver. Other countries were producing so-called silver coins of different finances, and most worrying from the English point of view was that some of these were just plain imitations of the uh, sterling penny, but uh, with much less silver. So here is a continental imitation of a sterling made around the same time, uh, and um, it has only 25% silver in it. Of course, this created tremendous problems, in particular for the people who had to make the coins and ensure that they were of the correct standard. So by 1285, we have a Latin treatise on the new money written by a mint man in England who was trying to explain to Boris the difficulties of making the coins of the correct standard. And he gives an artificial example with simple numbers. Here it is. Suppose I have to alloy the money to be nine pence fine, and I have bullion, that is, money has been brought to my mint, which is 11 pence fine, and some which is four pence fine. How am I going to mix these different types of bullion in order to make the correct standard? So bullion 11 pence fine means 11 parts of it in 12 are pure silver. Uh, a penny was one twelfth of a shilling, so 11, 12, 11 pence means 11 parts in 12. And the, uh, the worse bullion, which was only four pence fine, has only four parts silver in 12. And out of these two things, one better, one worse, the mint man has to make silver, which is nine pence fine, nine parts silver in 12. Problem is how to combine this better metal and this worse metal in order to produce the required standard. Well, the intuition is actually quite simple. 11 twelfths is better by two than the required standard, which is nine, and four twelfths is worse by five. So 
it's pretty clear that the metals should be combined in the inverse ratio, that is five of the better and two of the worse. This is <coughs> the conclusion reached in, in the treatise. It's explained in words, uh, but we can see it in modern notation, which must remember it was not available to the uh, workers, the arithmeticians in the 13th century, uh, because five times 11 plus two times four, that's five lots of 11 fine and two lots of four fine, uh, that adds up to 63. And 5 plus 2 is 7, so we've got 7 lots altogether, and 63 is 7 times 9. So the bullion that we are, the money that we are creating, the silver that we are creating, is in fact 9 pence fine. This technique became known as allegation, and it was one of the standard topics in uh, texts on arithmetic. The, uh, manuscripts written in the time of Fibonacci and thereafter, and from the end of the 15th century onwards in the printed books, which began to be produced in large numbers. And so we shall go on in the next part to see how this topic of allegation was the thing that first attracted me to Harriet's So we can now move on to the work of Thomas Harriet, which was done around 1600. Here is the item from Harriet's papers, which first drew my attention to his work on this topic. It is in fact a proof, a general proof, of the rule of allegation that we've just been discussing. Now the important point here is that this method and this notation was in fact quite new at this time. All the algebraic work, for example, on cubic equations that had been done in the 16th century was done with a, a cumbersome uh, notation involving words and symbols. And Harriet was among the first to use what we would now regard as modern algebraic notation. So what he is doing here is, uh, you can see uh, towards the left-hand side, the letters B, C, and D. B is the fineness of some better metal. C is the fineness required for the standard metal. And D is the fineness of some worse metal. And to the left of that, Harriet has written a rule that is, take D minus C parts of the better and C minus B parts of the worse to get D minus B parts altogether. And then the rest on the right is simply an algebraic calculation in exactly the terms we would use today, showing that if we do that, then in fact the mixture is in fact of the correct fineness C as required. So just a, a quick rundown on Harriet. Uh, he was born in Oxfordshire in 1560. We don't know any details of that. We do know he went to Oxford University. Uh, we do know that between about 1590 and 1620, he produced a vast amount of mathematical work, over 800 pages of it, uh, all of which 
was unpublished in his lifetime. Uh, the highlight of this was uh, probably his use of a telescope uh, to examine the surface of the moon in 1609, and uh, it's noteworthy that he did this before the much more well-known experiments of Galileo, and he died in London in 1621. So how was he able to do all this work? Well, he had the support of two famous patrons. <clears throat> Walter Raleigh uh, had recruited Harriet for uh, one of his voyages to the New World uh, because he required expert assistance with the navigation. And in fact, Harriet was able to make some significant advances in the techniques of calculation required in navigational matters. Harriet remained in touch with uh, Raleigh, but uh, he, he was lucky enough to be taken on by Henry Percy, ninth Earl of Northumberland, who had a large estate in West London, Sion House, and he installed Harriet there in a comfortable house where he was able to do, uh, able to carry out his mathematical and scientific work without any external pressures. Percy is also important to our story because soon after James I uh, ascended the throne of England in 1603, um, Henry Percy was appointed to the Privy Council. And one of the uh, important tasks of the Henry Privy Council and King James was to unify the coinages of Scotland and England. Both countries had been producing gold and silver coins, but they were confusingly um, apparently similar in name but different in fact. And so the Privy Council set out to do something which in modern terms is probably comparable with the decimalization. English coinage, which of course didn't take place until 1971. Here is a proclamation that uh, was produced in, towards the end of 1604 and sets out what they proposed to do regarding the gold and silver coins. So there were to be gold coins, <clears throat> and you can see on the right hand side that £37.4 shillings worth of these gold coins was to be made out of one pound troy of metal. This metal was to be crown gold, as it was called, which was what we would now call 22 carats fine. That is, 22 parts out of 24 uh, were pure gold. The numbers in the tables are the weights of the individual coins based upon the tariff that's set out on the right-hand side. So the top line tells you what a one-pound coin ought to weigh in the light of that statement. The bottom half is about the silver coins, and it tells you that these, which were now by, by now made of what we call sterling silver, definitely 92.5% pure silver, of these, three pounds, two shillings worth were to be made from the same weight of 
metal metals of one atom of troy. Now, <clears throat> an implicit fact, which those of us who remember how to do arithmetic with pounds, shillings, and pence will always, almost certainly have spotted, was the ratio between the values of the gold and silver coins. In other words, the amount of metal that the amount of gold that was worth 37 pounds four shillings was the same as the weight of silver that was worth three pounds two shillings. And the ratio between these numbers is in fact 12 to one. It turns out that this is not the whole story about the ratio. The ratio was particularly important because when the international markets, if the ratio in another country was different from the one adopted here, then money could be made by merchants simply by arbitrage, that is by uh, taking gold abroad and exchanging it for silver and then reversing, uh, bringing the silver back and changing it into gold or vice versa. So Harriet set out to do some calculations about the ratio, and in fact, he wasn't interested at first in the new coins, he was interested in some old gold coins. These were the coins known as angels. Here is one from the time probably of Henry VIII. Many of these were still around, uh, they had been produced throughout the reigns of Henry VIII and Elizabeth, uh, and indeed before that. And Harriet wished to establish the value of these things by working out the ratio of the angel gold to the silver as it was being proclaimed uh, in the uh, details that we saw. Now, the angel gold was almost pure. In other words, stated to be anyway, 191 parts gold in 192 as opposed to the new gold coins, which were going to be 22 carat gold, that is 22 in 11 parts in 12. Here is Harriet's calculation. On the right-hand top, you can see the ratio of gold to silver. Now, that's about the only explanation there is. He never wrote much explanation of what he was doing, but by looking carefully at the calculations and the signs and the numbers, we can work out that he is in fact working out the ratio as it applied to angel gold and sterling silver, but in three different ways. So he first of all worked out the ratio in the way analogous to the way it was given to the, in the proclamation. In other words, the ratio in terms of the coined metal the angel gold and the sterling silver. That came out to be 11.6129. He then went on to a, a fact that was more pertinent to the international markets, and that was not the alloy metals, as they appeared in the coins, but the pure gold and the pure silver. So if the alloys were to be reckoned as of no value, that is, if the additional metals in the coins were to be disregarded, 
when we just worked with the ratio of a pure gold to pure silver, we actually get a ratio of 10.7981. And even more uh, tricky, uh, he also did the calculation saying, well, that's all very well, but actually the uh, silver, uh, the gold coins, the alloy is actually silver in them. If we are regarding silver as a metal of value, we ought to reckon for that the silver in the gold as well. In fact, it makes very little difference, as you can see, and that, of course, because the angel gold was, in fact, almost pure gold. So why would Harriet have done these calculations? Almost certainly, he was asked to do so by Henry Percy for two possible reasons. Um, one would be that Percy was a wealthy landowner and would have had a, a, a number of gold coins in his treasury, many of them the old angels which had been coined in the time of Elizabeth. Another more uh, <clears throat> general interest would have been that as a member of the Privy Council, Percy would have been keen to know what should be proclaimed as the value of angel gold uh, when and if any more angels were to be produced. In fact, it took quite a long time before such a proclamation was actually made. And the new angels, when they did appear, though there were relatively few of them, they were actually coined at a different value to the earlier ones. All these calculations were based on official data about the fineness of the coins. But Harriet also had reasons for looking at the facts more carefully, and he began to conduct his own experiments. And here we have an innovation in that he used the hydrostatic method. Hydrostatic idea, of course, goes back to Archimedes, but in fact, the use of the principle uh, for the numerical evaluation of the density of substances was relatively recent. And Harriet's papers contain a large number of notes of various publications from the last part of the 16th century where scholars around the world had been starting to do uh, estimations of specific gravity, as we should call it, using the hydrostatic method. Also, there is this little picture of a balance, which is intended to show a mechanism for weighing objects, not just coins, of course, any objects, both in air and then in water. So the details are best explained by looking at uh, one of Harriet's uh, experiments. He did a very large number of experiments of this kind. Uh, they're all a terrible mess and a scrawl, so I made a transcript of this one. Um, in the top line, you will see in air, and then a symbol which is the symbol for gold. So in fact, we can deduce from other scrawl that he was weighing 18 angels in air. Alongside that, there is a list of weights 
which he's used to balance those. And uh, reducing the answer to grains, the total comes out to be 1408.5 grains. He then repeated the experiment, weighing the same parcel of gold in water, and gets a lesser one three two nine and a half. So the difference is seventy nine, and the numerical form of Archimedes' principle uh, tells us that this is in fact the weight of the water that has been displaced by the gold. So from that we can deduce how it did deduce the specific gravity, as we should call it, the relative density of gold in terms of that of water. So the ratio in that column at the bottom there, uh, 79 grains of water occupy the same volume as 1408.5 grains of gold. And he then transforms that into uh, taking the base as 1000 for water. Harriet did many experiments of this kind and he also did some more tricky experiments. Here is the, the transcript of one of them. Um, this is actually about trying to determine the specific gravity of the alloy coins and um, the uh, details are quite tricky and I'm going to leave that there and refer you to the transcript uh, of the talk. So we can now move on to the aftermath of this work and how it affected the fate of Harriet's unpublished papers and his reputation in the years to come. Harriet's situation supported by his patrons was in many ways ideal, but it did have its drawbacks. Walter Raleigh had always had a difficult relationship with Queen Elizabeth, and when King James came to the throne in 1603, he lost little time in having Raleigh arrested, put on trial, and condemned to death. King James magnanimously suspended the sentence, but nevertheless Raleigh was confined in the tower for many years. This affair had a serious effect on Harriet because at the trial he was blamed for being a malign influence on Raleigh. But worse was to come, because towards the end of 1605, Guy Fawkes conceived the idea that it would be a good idea to blow up Parliament and the King and all the members of Parliament in it. The plot failed at the last moment, but it turned out that one of Guy Fawkes' fellow conspirators was Thomas Percy. This Thomas Percy was uh, a relation of Henry Percy. Harriet's patron, and worse still, he had visited Henry Percy at Sion House on the day before the November plot. So uh, Henry Percy and 
Harriet were taken off to the tower and Percy was interrogated at great length. No serious evidence against him was ever found, but nevertheless, he too was confined in the tower for about 15 years. Harriet was fortunate enough to be released and eventually he was able to return to his scientific work. For example, he did a lot of experimental work on optics, the laws of refraction, and this led to his ability to view the moon's surface with a telescope in 1609. In 1611, his expertise in optics was put to a more mundane use when he was asked to make spectacles for the Lord High Admiral. The man responsible for this uh, was the Admiral's secretary at the time, Thomas Aylesbury, and he will play a large part in the ensuing story. So, Harriet and Aylesbury remained on good terms after the affair of uh, 1611 with the spectacles, and eventually Aylesbury was appointed as an executor of Harriet's will, with specific responsibility for his papers and hopefully their eventual publication. Aylesbury continued to rise in the civil service, and in 1627, that would be under Charles I, uh, he, he became a master of requests and a baronet. <clears throat> Strangely, in 1632, he was appointed sole maker of balances and weights for the king's money. This appointment must surely have had something to do with his knowledge of Harriet's work and his papers, which contained, as we have seen, work on coinage. And indeed, uh, Aylesbury rose yet further because in 1635 he became the master of the mint. So regarding the papers, uh, according to Harriet's will, <coughs> the papers should be put in a convenient trunk with a lock and a key and placed in my, thought, my Lord of Northumberland's library. There were also instructions about publication and, as we said, Aylesbury had to take charge of that. Matters went rather slowly, but uh, after 10 years, uh, Aylesbury, with the help of Walter Warner, uh, another of Northumberland's associates, um, they produced uh, a small sample of Harriet's work, which was published. It's a rather poor attempt to uh, display what Harriet had achieved in algebra, and it contained nothing at all about uh, the scientific work or the uh, work on coinage. However, in 1634 and 35, we know that Warner wrote tracts on the co-mixture of metals for the mint. In other words, the matters about which we have been talking in the rest of this talk. Almost certainly, Warner did this at Aylesbury's request. 
but the uh, power of the Aylesbury was relatively short-lived because in 1642 the civil war broke out. Aylesbury was, of course, a strong royalist. Warner himself died in 1643, and Aylesbury, first of all, went with the king to Oxford, which was the royalist headquarters, and when Charles was eventually executed in 1649, Aylesbury decided it was time to go abroad. As far as the work on coinage is concerned, it seems that it remained of interest to the powers that be, because here we have this note in 1650, the Commonwealth time, which says that Mr. Ward, the professor of mathematics, sorry, the professor of astronomy at Oxford, is to set out the mathematical and other works of Warner on Queen's. This comes from Hartlib's Ephemerides, a, a book of gossip which has an amazing number of useful insights into what was going on at the top of the uh, tree in the land at this time. However, nothing apparently came of that, and all we know is that Aylesbury died in exile in 1657. The story of Harriet's papers after that is a sad tale indeed. It was not until 1784 that a large collection of Harriet's papers was in fact found at Petworth, which is one of the Northumberland's residences, not the one in London, this was his country residence. And although the discovery was a great event, the subsequent events were by no means so good. The discoverer of the papers seems to have set about distributing and disordering them in a rather random way, and in 1811 some of them finished up at the British Museum. The British Museum bound papers as they were presented to them, which was in a totally disordered state. And in fact, it was not until 200 years later, 2011, that it was possible to examine these volumes seriously, because in that year, 2011, Harriet's papers, the surviving ones, were published online, partly as a result of the work of the late Jacqueline Steddle. The publication included the British Museum volumes and the papers that had been left at Petworth after their removal. So, what conclusions can we draw from this story? Well, we can be sure that Harriet's papers did contain material on coinage because we have seen it. We know that some of this material survived, and it seems likely that there may have been more, more papers that were used by Warner, perhaps 
taken up by Aylesbury when he went abroad and have totally vanished. Aylesbury certainly had access to and was in fact in charge of all Harriet's papers as a result of the wishes expressed in Harriet's will. We also know that the papers were regarded as important for the work on coinage, as well as the mathematical and scientific work contained in them. The Royal Society had tried hard in the 1670s to locate the papers, uh, but they were totally unsuccessful at that time. And as I said, it was over a hundred years later before the box of papers was actually discovered and So I, I'm happy to answer any questions. Um, there is, I think, going to be a question session, and you have the um, the transcript, which is provided by the Provincial College. For those who want to read more detail, uh, the talk is based on my paper with the same title, which appeared in archive for the history of exact sciences and there are a couple of other publications of mine which contain relevant material specifically enlarging upon the numismatic side of the work that Harriet had done. So thank you for listening.